Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll hear why thousands of Coloradans are applying for emergency rental assistance. Many are low-wage workers and people of color. Sí, recordar, o sea, fue un momento muy difícil, muy difícil. Plus, we'll explore how the pandemic has impacted early childhood education. And we'll hear what's happening with the Stanley Lake Live Eagle Cam. All that and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Even before the pandemic, Colorado's early childhood education system was on shaky ground. Families had difficulty finding affordable, high-quality child care, child care centers were underfunded, and early childhood educators were barely getting by themselves. Then the massive disruption of COVID-19 hit the already struggling system. Early Milestones Colorado is a nonprofit that champions early childhood education. They recently completed a study looking into the pandemic's impact on the state's early childhood education sector. My colleague Henry Zimmerman spoke with their Director of Research and Policy, Meg Franco, and Research Director, Suzanne DeLapp. Hi, Henry. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can you take us back to when COVID-19 first struck Colorado? What did that look like for child care providers and for families trying to find child care? At the very beginning, a lot of early care and education centers closed. It took a little support and time, um, including some efforts by an early childhood collaborative that helped pay for um, essential workers, frontline healthcare workers to be able to get childcare at participating sites to start to open things up again. But it was still a very, very tough time for the sector. Where are we at in terms of childcare, say now, compared to a year ago? During the height of the pandemic in the summer, enrollment declined significantly. And there were differences by age and also by different sizes of provider. But overall, we, we found that the average drop was about 39% in enrollment for children up to age five and then close to 30% for school-age children between the ages of 5 and 12. Can you tell us more about your study? I know you looked at three groups, providers, workforce, and families. So we conducted a survey series in three parts over the summer of 2020 and into the early fall. So that was our wave one. And then we're currently conducting a second wave, um, which ran from um, November 24th and is still currently open. Again, looking at the same communities. I think what's interesting in the family survey is that we have this idea of who has the care that they need right now. But there's also this kind of hidden undertone of disruption. It's one thing to have the care that you need, but then we're also faced with this inconsistent coverage due to rolling disruptions and closures and exposures to COVID. So families are kind of fighting two battles and one is securing care and the other is maintaining that care in certain groups. And that would be communities of color, even um, individuals who perhaps qualify for public funding or are on a lower income scale they were more likely to bear the brunt of lacking access to care and and these disruptions. So there's definitely inequity in the system that was really highlighted by the impact of the pandemic. All of these things are obviously interconnected. 
what does that mean for recovery in these three parts, providers, workforce, and families, as it relates to early childhood education? A lot of things need to fall into place in order to bring the sector back up, hopefully, to where it was. But those things that need to fall into place really include families having greater confidence that their kids are safe when they do send them to care. So things like teachers getting vaccines and centers having all the PPE and cleaning supplies they need, as well as getting money, frankly, to uh, child care centers to sustain their operations. We asked providers what's happened to their revenue and their monthly income since the start of the pandemic, and overwhelmingly, about 80% of our sample told us that they've lost monthly revenue. And it did depend on the size of the provider, but on average, our providers have lost anywhere between 25 and 75% of their monthly income. We then asked them what they might need on an ongoing monthly basis, so not just a one-time kind of shot in the arm of a grant fund, but what would they need ongoing to get back to pre-pandemic revenue? And so we found that on average, providers need between $2,000 to $4,000 per month in order to, to get back to where they were. What are some of the maybe less obvious consequences of a weakened early childhood education infrastructure? I think we've all heard the statistics about the large number of women in particular who have dropped out of the workforce during this pandemic. It's going to be tremendously difficult for a lot of those women to be able to get back into the workforce without adequate childcare. And in the long run, that really impacts our economy. For me, it kind of goes along with that idea of a cradle-to-career pipeline for our children. So if early care and education is weakened, children may be entering preschool and the K-12 through years with less of a stable basis. They may have less less exposure to to pre-literacy, pre-mathematics. They may also have less social interaction and and development. And so I think that we could see effects of this quite long-term if we can't find a way to sustain and rebuild the sector. Meg Franco and Suzanne Delap, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. That was Early Milestones Colorado Director of Research and Policy Meg Franco and Research Director Suzanne Delap speaking with my colleague Henry Zimmerman. More than a year into the coronavirus pandemic, many Coloradans, particularly Black and Latino residents, are struggling to pay their rent. The number of requests for emergency rental assistance are surging, just as millions of dollars in federal stimulus money is coming into counties across Colorado. In the first of a three-part series we're calling On the Edge, KUNC's Lee Patterson has more on the economic factors pushing people to ask for help. Last May, Adela and her three kids spent a lot of time hanging outside. It's beautiful. (laughs) She shows me a video of them playing soccer and listening to music at Horsetooth Reservoir, west of Fort Collins, and another one of her son riding a scooter through a parking lot. Your kids look so happy. But at home, in the trailer park where they live in Fort Collins, last spring was tough. Adela is a stay-at-home mom. We're using her first name only to protect her privacy. Her husband, who is a house painter, was out of work during May and June, which has created a cascade of financial troubles for them. As we talk, huge tears roll silently down her cheeks, soaking into her blue face mask. 
en sobrevivir. At that moment, she says, she was just trying to survive. Adela's family lived paycheck to paycheck before the pandemic, so when her husband's work dried up, she was immediately looking for ways to pay for utilities and rent. Siempre comida, comida, comida. And describes making the rounds at local churches every week looking for food. Soon after, Adela applied for and received $1,700 in emergency rental assistance from Neighbor to Neighbor, a housing assistance nonprofit in Larimer County. But these days, they're still behind on bills, like insurance and the car payment. And her husband's work slowed down again over the winter. It's not like it was before, she says, when I was at the food bank every week, but we're still having financial difficulties. Adela's story is just one example of how so many Coloradans have come to be unstably housed. Many are unemployed or have been at some point during the pandemic and just haven't been able to catch up. So eventually you just run out of cash and you run out of income. Martin Shields is a regional economist with Colorado State University. And all of a sudden you can't pay even your most basic bills like your rent. Since this time last year, over 14,000 tenants have applied for millions of dollars in emergency rental assistance through the state, which is available for people who can't pay because of COVID-19. The majority have applied in the past few months. Black and Latino residents have applied at a disproportionate rate, making up 45 percent of requests statewide. We have so many people that are working working hard, but still kind of on the economic margins on this fine line between making it and not. This is particularly true among low-wage workers. In analyzing job loss data in Larimer County, Shields found that over half of the jobs lost during the pandemic have been in leisure, hospitality, and retail, staffed by workers who are predominantly Latinos, women, and young people. Employment for these and other kinds of low-wage jobs in the state has rebounded slower than for higher-wage earners. This crisis, it really is a crisis for these families, has kind of laid bare how many people are, are living on this knife's edge. But help is out there. Throughout the pandemic, rental assistance in Colorado has been available through a combination of local, state, and federal funds. In December, Congress passed a COVID relief bill that includes $25 billion to help renters. It seems like it is working to a degree. Lisa Winchester is the president of the Northern Colorado Apartment Association and the property manager of an apartment complex in Fort Collins. I think the problem is, is that there are so many people seeking assistance right now that all of those agencies are very strained. How and where you apply for emergency assistance depends on where you live. In Larimer County, it's through the nonprofit Neighbor to Neighbor. <laughs> Come on in. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. The organization that helped Adela last year is now charged with giving out $10 million worth of federal rental assistance in the county. Kelly Evans is the executive director. So our average check right now is just under $5,000 per applicant to the landlord. Demand during the pandemic has been overwhelming. Evans says they've helped 4,000 residents pay rent. A significant number of applicants are undocumented. Many speak a language other than English. Right now, they have 800 applications in their processing queue and a wait time of around six weeks. Because as soon as we get 
people assisted, there's just that many more people who are applying. Evans has had to double the number of housing coordinators on staff, some of whom speak Spanish. The increase in need, she says, is in part due to the word getting out about emergency rental assistance. They're bringing in people through La Familia, a family services and daycare center in town. The state is now advertising the program with its weekly unemployment email blast. When something unforeseen like this happens, it's really important to preserve housing stability because the domino effect that happens if housing stability is lost is very real and very significant. Like the ability for kids to stay in school and parents to stay employed, for example. So I think we're going to need rental assistance for years to come. In March, President Joe Biden signed a coronavirus relief package, which includes $21 billion in rental assistance that will be available until 2027. But that money takes time to reach those in need. Earlier this month, Adela applied for emergency rental assistance again with help from her landlord. Last week, I checked in. Her husband Oscar translated. Hi, this is Adela's husband. Adela says not much has changed in the last month. They haven't heard back about their assistance request. I'm still waiting on that. And it's been four weeks. Between the first time they got help with rent and now, they've borrowed money from Adela's brother and from a woman in their community in order to pay other bills. But some things are looking up. Her husband's job painting houses is getting a little busier. Have either of you been vaccinated? Yes, on Sunday. And Adela says they're both feeling good. A few hours later, she texted saying that she was super happy. Her rental assistance request had just been approved. Lee Patterson, KUNC. The economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic have put a spotlight on housing instability. Our series On the Edge continues tomorrow with a look at a new voter-approved program in Boulder that works to help tenants avoid eviction. You can find more on our series at KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Erin O'Toole. Bald eagles have been a steady presence at Stanley Lake in Westminster since 1993. And in the digital age, a 24-hour eagle cam has brought the Stanley Lake birds a loyal national following. But last April, there was a disturbance in the nest in the form of a hostile takeover, and it rocked the eagle enthusiast world. The drama came shortly before a new generation of eaglets was due to hatch from their eggs. The eagle cam captured it, along with the imagination of eagle lovers around the world. Lexi Sierra Martinez is a park ranger at Stanley Lake, and she's here now to explain last year's hubbub and to share some updates on the eagle situation this year. Lexi, welcome to Colorado Edition. Hey, thank you. Happy to be here. Let's start at the beginning. Can you give us a, a synopsis of the eagle drama that started last year at Stanley Lake? Around this time last year, we had two bald eagles that we've had in the park for a, a few years. Um, we called them mom and dad. And they had three eggs. And there was a floater eagle. That's what we call an external eagle that's not part of the the park or part of the the nesting area and her name is now f420 but she came in and she basically tried to take over the nest reasons are unknown but it ended up with an altercation between her and mom and long story short mom was never seen again i have never really seen an altercation between eagles what was that like <laughs> yeah it was 
It was not seen on camera for the most part. The initial fight was seen from someone who was nearby in the park. And they were basically, it, it seems like they were almost falling to the ground in their fight, sort of chasing after each other. I'm not sure exactly how much damage was done to each other, but it looks like they probably did use their talons quite a bit on each other. There had been some fights later that evening after the initial fight where it's just her trying to get into the nest and dad flapping his wings. Um, our camera has sound, so really, really vocal, screaming quite a bit. Wow. What was it like then for Stanley Lake to suddenly become the center of all of this attention and concern from the Eagle community? It was a lot. Last year, there were uh, lots of news stations calling, lots of concerned people calling the Nature Center, asking for updates. People were really upset and really concerned. This was right at the very beginning of COVID. So a lot of people were relying on virtual things like an eagle cam for entertainment and for comfort and for a sense of normalcy. And then these eagles that haven't had an issue in 25 years uh, start having all this drama. It was, <laughs> it was really upsetting, understandably to staff too. We were, we were glued to our computers. I was working at home temporarily and I had one computer monitor open at all times, just watching the Eagle cam. How many people typically watch the Eagle cam? Do you know, do you have a sense of that? And, and do you have any idea how much it increased last year? We have several hundred people who are avid fans that are watching all the time that are active on Facebook fan groups. I would say that during the Eagle drama, we probably had several thousand at any given time. Does that at all translate into more people coming to visit in person, maybe to try to get a glimpse of the nest? Absolutely. We've had a 400% increase in visitation just in 2020. People coming to the Nature Center, asking if they can borrow binoculars. They're here, they heard about the eagles, just a, a lot, a lot of people coming out. Well, a full year cycle has now passed since that drama. Um, are there any updates in Eagle Land? Yes, so there have been two eggs that have been laid, which is standard. The first was laid on February 27th and the second one was March 2nd. There's a 35 day incubation period, so we are expecting to see one hatch any any minute now. If you were to watch the eagle cam, you can't see directly down into the nest, so you can't see uh, the eggs physically hatching, but you can watch the parents' behavior. And things to look out for are them circling the nest. They'll sort of turn their heads down, sort of like when you're asking your dog if he wants to go on a walk and he's turning his head towards you. Same, same sort of behaviors. Right now, dad has been bringing a lot of nesting material into the nest. I, he just can't get it quite right for whatever reason. So it seems like they're really preparing for their, their eggs to start hatching any minute now. So we're officially on eaglet watch. Yes, yes, we definitely are. Well, last year, there was a, a lot of hostility towards F420. This year, the public seems to be behind her, rooting for her and, and her forthcoming eaglets. Are Eagle fans too fickle here? Um, I wouldn't say that. I, I think it's really hard just as humans in general to not anthropomorphize. It's our instinct to assign our own behaviors to other species in order to better understand them. Nothing that F420 was doing was out of spite or anger. She's just trying to survive. 
we, we want them to succeed at the end of the day. And mom was probably put in the same situation as F420. I am more than anything, just grateful for all of the fans that we have of the Eagles. It helps spread awareness for our wildlife and helps increase protections and helps us educate the public better about what not to do and and how to safely visit the park. So at the end of the day, even though there was some uh, some anger towards F420, it all ended up being positive. Lexi Sierra Martinez is a park ranger at Stanley Lake in Westminster. Lexi, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. In other Colorado eagle news, sadly, a different bald eagle couple nesting at Bar Lake State Park lost their two eggs today when their nesting tree fell into the water. If you've been outside lately, you might sense that it's finally spring. If not from the temperatures or the budding grass and flowers and the pollen, you can tell by what you hear and see flying over your backyard. Madeline Beck has more for KUNC. Yes, parts of our region are still seeing snow and frost and sleet, but here's a sign that spring is actually here. Migrating birds are coming back from warm southern winter ranges, fueled by hormones and the need to mate. If you don't sing really well, you might not get uh, a female. That's Terry Rich. He's in Boise, Idaho, and he's been bird watching for a while. Probably around 1962 when I was in junior high. Oh, so you're new to it. Yeah, pretty new. <laughs> Still learning, I'll tell you that. He was a leader in bird conservation with the federal government for decades. Now he's mostly retired, but that doesn't mean he's done bird watching. There's always the possibility that you'll see something that you didn't expect. So it's always, it's always a treasure hunt. Rich says the spring migration in the Mountain West is unique for a few reasons. For one, there's not a central body of water for birds to fly up, like the coastlines or the Mississippi River, so birds spread out. But there are streams and lakes and wetlands. So you get a wetland in the middle of, the, of Nevada, or you get Malheur, you know, is a famous place in eastern Oregon, or even here at Hyatt Lakes. You get a wetland in the middle of sagebrush, that becomes your, sort of your oasis. There's also a lot of different elevations here. Rich says you can find different species just by driving up a mountain a ways. So it's, it's easy to transition without driving a great distance. Before you see a bird though, Rich says a lot of the time you can hear it. There's a song sparrow singing over here to the left. For Rich, his favorite migratory bird song is from the yellow-breasted chat. They do a lot of funny like clucks and whistles. And so if you just listen to them for a while, it just like, it's like they're messing with you. <laughs> and they'll stop sometimes and they'll go, bark. <laughs> beep, beep. I checked around and Rich's love of the yellow-breasted chat isn't unique. Take wildlife biologist Kathy Grineo in New Mexico. They have one of the craziest songs that you'll ever hear. And Colin Woolley in Colorado, who identifies and tracks birds for a living. It's a very strange bird. And what does it sound like? Well, here's some snippets. Yeah, that's one bird. But birder Don Jones in Laramie, Wyoming, prefers the hermit thrush. 
Jones is working on bird surveys with the University of Wyoming in Laramie. He loves the idea that for part of the year, people half a world away see the same birds. You know, we think of them as being our birds, but in reality, they spend more of the year in a tropical rainforest in Costa Rica or Ecuador than they do in Wyoming. Now, if all this talk about birding has you interested in giving it a try, Terry Rich in Boise says just go to a place nearby where birds are and enjoy. Don't worry so much about trying to identify everything or, or, or get bummed out because you can't tell what it is. Just start by just enjoying what you see. From there, possibly go out with someone knowledgeable, like an Audubon group or someone like him. I always hope ultimately people will then move a little bit into conservation and do some things that will help birds, but uh, I think you just start by enjoying it. There are some things you can do to help migrating birds, like keeping cats inside and turning off outside lights at night. You can even log birds you see onto the eBird app, so you can keep track while also helping conservationists. That's what Rich does, especially when he sees something exciting. It's the first swallow of the year. The first swallow I've seen this year right there is a northern rough-winged swallow. Just one. It's migration, you never know. Every day is something different. So for new birders and birdsong enthusiasts, here's just a few migration sounds you'll hear in parts of the Mountain West from now through May. The western meadowlark, the sandhill crane, barn swallows, Swainson's hawk, and the yellow warbler. Nice to listen to, and according to scientific research, good for your mental health. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how one Front Range City is helping local renters with free legal aid and money to fight eviction. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.